Well, good evening to you. Good again to share in the service tonight. And thanks to Simon for the welcome and uh, for the memory. I was so glad when I was involved in the baptism with uh, Simon that I had insisted on a very long baptistry. We were safe that night, Simon. And ever since he reached these towering heights, he's the man I've always looked up to. So there we are. The lies I tell, but there we go. I have two readings for you this evening. The first is a short one, uh, just really one verse from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. And then we're looking in Hebrews chapter 10, which is the, in, in some ways the main focus this evening. In 1 Timothy, we have a a surprisingly interesting um, guideline for pastoral ministry, for the life of God's people, and it's found in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 1. The goal of this command, and that command is not to get involved in false doctrines, myths, etc., just leave it all aside Uh, make sure people don't get doing these kind of things. But the goal gives the reason for acting like that. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's quite a surprising guideline in some ways to pastoral ministry and for the life of the church. And fascinating that within it has this question of the conscience, which will be our theme this evening. Hebrews chapter 10, reading from verse 19. Now these verses come at a great junction in the book. Um, The book of Hebrews is written to help Christians long ago to stay the course so many things could draw them away. Their own failures before temptation, their own weaknesses and the culture in which they lived that might ensnare them, the tendency to go back to the old Jewish system and underestimate what Christ had done, and their own sinfulness and fear and weakness, whatever it was that would draw them away. And Part of the the gathering argument around the greatness of Jesus Christ to satisfy all the needs of God's people and enable us to remain in friendship with the living God, following Christ, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Within it, there was a question that bothered people. Could they come back to the Lord and follow him if they had somehow yielded to the pressures of the culture around? Could they come back to the Lord if they had somehow betrayed him under persecution? Could they come back if they had ensnared themselves in legalistic patterns again? And so on, and so on, and so on. And on the argument that Christ deals with everything, and that he opens up the way to the Father's heart and presence, these verses come, these magnificent verses. 
Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. May God bless the reading of his word uh, to our hearts this night. Tonight we look at what we're calling the inner voice, the conscience. I toyed with preaching on that theme this morning, but I'm glad I didn't because this passage in Hebrews, I think, draws us very nicely to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. For here we see how we can draw near to God. All the provision for all our needs spiritually, the breaking down of the great barrier of sin and so on is there. But the reason for raising this theme of the conscience this evening is that it's something that has become very muted in our society. One of the surprising things is when you actually look around the Christian literature over the last 20, 30 years or more, very little has been written directly on the conscience. And yet, the New Testament speaks of it frequently. As Paul said to Timothy, it's part of the way in which you can guarantee love among a congregation. It's one of the elements that matter. And since we were talking about the renewing of our mind this morning, it's that agent of our own morality. It's that which helps us to live in the will and purpose of God and on his righteous paths. One of the fascinating things about the Old Testament is that it doesn't use the word conscience, but you'll find it everywhere. You only need to read Psalm 51 and see that heart of David just broken apart by his own sinfulness and only able to speak to God at all because someone had probed his conscience. Thou art the man. And that cut to the quick. Psalm 32 has the joy of sins forgiven and the sense of a heart that's new and fresh with God. Oh, it's there. So it's not always the word itself, it's the whole concept that we are moral beings. God made us like that in creation. The simple prohibition of taking fruit from one tree said something to us. 
You are accountable to me, creatures that I have made. And here is how you will know. I've set a limit on your freedom. You can eat anything. You can do everything within the garden. But do not do that. And then that great question. When they did that, where are you, Adam? I often feel God is speaking to me like that because the most frequent message on my antiquated mobile, which is mainly used by my wife to dictate my patterns of life, is questions like this, where are you? (laughs) Over and over again. So I cannot forget this question that God addressed to them and addresses to us still through our conscience. And the Old Testament is filled with the sense of that. And the New Testament sharpens it in its language. In the story of Pinocchio, if you're a fan of such things, then you may remember that Jimmy Cricket sang, Always Let Your Conscience be your guide. And that's reasonably true, though not quite as infallible as Jimmy Cricket seems to think. There's still something else that needs to be said. But we need to recover the conscience. I think we've developed a social conscience that is sharper and clearer in many parts of our society about all kinds of things. Sometimes out of sentiment at times, sometimes out of misguided thinking, but often with a sense of need in the world that we have to respond to, of injustice that we have to meet. But our own personal individual morality seems to have lost that sharp, clear sense of conscience. It's just possible that if you're under 30, you may never have heard a sermon directly on conscience. If you'd been a Puritan, you'd have heard it all the time, sometimes overstretched and overpressed. How we swing from one thing to the other. But the chaos in making moral decisions and in being able to walk through all these varied circumstances that have been thrust in our face uh, almost year after year in every sphere of life, from sexuality to end of life or beginning of life stories and all the rest, has almost made it impossible for us to find our way. I'm quite pleased tonight to be speaking on this theme because one of my favourite friends is Martin Luther of the 16th century. Oh, he had his issues and his problems and some of his theology I wouldn't share. But he was a real man who loved God's word and had a passion for truth. And we cannot underestimate that in the, this is the big 500th year, if you don't know, of Martin Luther sticking up a sheet of Things that he wanted discussed. His thesis that needed looked at in the church's practice and behavior and belief within certain parameters. And all he was doing was asking, as was the normal thing of the time, 
for it to be discussed and sorted out, and if necessary, to get the Pope to sort it out for them all. But they turned against him. And in the great moment when he may or may not have said the words, here I stand, but I don't think he was spitting in people's faces when he said that, here I stand, that kind of way. I think he was simply saying, my feet are on this rock. This is what he said. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of holy scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of holy scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. And Eck, who was chairing the big debate and the trial, as it were, simply said, throw away your conscience, Martin Luther, because Luther was asserting his conscience against even the church's teaching and the councils and the Pope on the basis of God's word, the individual conscience. And yet, he said he would believe none of them alone, and he would, if shown from Scripture or right reason that he was in a wrong position, have changed his mind. A magnificent thing. I'm going to be doing four uh, themes on Martin Luther in a church um, in September. And I'm looking at his music and hymns. I'm looking at his prayer. I'm looking at his catechisms. And I'm looking at his use of the Bible And always I see two fascinating things. An amazing desire for the formation of God's people in Christ. Just getting the gospel to them that they might be rescued from their sins was one thing. But getting it into them that they might become like Christ was another. And through it all, from children right through, they would learn in the catechisms, they would sing it in their hymns. The creeds, the beliefs, the prayer, the Beatitudes, the Ten Commandments, that their conscience might be developed according to the teaching of God's Word. Fascinating. What a man he was, and he lived by his conscience. It is an inner voice. It seems almost independent of us. And those of you who are more used to it presented as the, the good angel and the bad angel, the black figure and the white figure on your shoulder battling it out, it's not two elements of your conscience. One was Satan, as it were, the devil tempting you, and the other was your conscience trying to say yes or no to whatever you were facing in life. And conscience can only say yes to what it believes is right and no to everything else, the inner voice. Conscience is the voice we dare not ignore. 
It's God's way of implanting in us a moral self-awareness. Notice con, which means with or alongside, and sense, science, knowledge, etc. It's a knowledge with, a knowledge with ourselves. Your conscience is your conscience. One of the big troubles in our society and in our churches and in our lives is we keep on insisting that my conscience should be yours. And it gets us into all sorts of trouble. Because conscience only deals with that which you know to be right or wrong. Of course, if your knowledge of right and wrong is poor or skewed, Conscience will, has got little to operate with, but it can upgrade your knowledge. That's why we spoke about the renewing of the mind this morning and soaking ourselves in God's Word that the conscience might have all the material it needs to make good and wise decisions. It's a kind of moral compass. And it tries to help us in the tricky situations of life to somehow get everything in alignment with God's will. My heart, my mind, in, our, in this situation with the will and purpose of God. One of my thrills many, many years ago was um, sailing a fishing boat. It was up in Orkney and my dear friends risked their life and livelihood by giving myself an opportunity to sail their fishing boat for half an hour. And the water was pretty tricky up in the Orkneys. The tides are turning around all the time and it's swirling and swaying. But as we came in to um, the harbour area, they said to me this, can you see the light at the top of the hill, the light um, in the middle on the roof and the light on the harbour wall? Keep them in alignment. Do you know? I sailed it into the harbour. They wouldn't let me berth the thing, of course. They immediately took over, and always somebody was standing around me in case I blew the whole thing. My brother had the same opportunity on another vessel, but that lasted about five minutes because he was going round and round and round in circles. But I had the joy of understanding how when our mind and heart and will in any circumstance in the sea of life, even the stormy seas of life, is in alignment with God's will, you can sail safely through it. Isn't that amazing? And tuning the conscience that it be like that, a a moral compass which constantly needs calibrated. I, I was reading a little bit about calibration. I always like to try and kind of check things that I don't really know anything about. I'm not very good with these things, but I noticed something to do with smartphones that can have a compass and you have to calibrate it. And some of them you have to shake it about in certain orders. Others you've got to do a a thing of eight until the beam is working right. And many people, of course, with their sat-nav don't update their maps, and get lost. Everybody needs to recalibrate such things. And so does the Christian, constantly, to keep the compass, the moral compass, right. It's the voice we dare not ignore. 
It's not quite the voice of God, because if our conscience is treated as the voice of God, then I can use my conscience to browbeat yours. And if yours is the voice of God and thinks different, we are in trouble. So it's the voice we dare not ignore because this is what makes us moral and accountable. So it's also the voice that directs our path. It bears witness to that which is right and wrong and true. It testifies to us. It accuses when we're going in the wrong way and it approves us when we're doing right. You know that amazing feeling where you're wrestling with something and you you desperately want to do the wrong thing. But you do the right thing. There's strange wholeness and joy. A kind of harmony. It's like... It's like these moments when an orchestra is all in discord and then suddenly it's in harmony and it's beautiful and it's peaceful. Or like a sea that's churning and its waves are strong and then you go back and look at it and all is calm. When we let that conscience direct our path, it brings us peace within and joy and wholeness and strength. The, Paul speaks about some of these things in Romans chapter 2 about even the Gentiles have a, a conscience. That's how they live and stand. They didn't have the law and that's how the world has to live without the Bible and without Christ. We have the Bible and we have Christ so we are all the more required and obligated to ensure our conscience is sharp and clear and as well educated as it possibly can be. It does direct our path. And we need to cultivate listening to that voice. Conscience is the voice that must be kept in good condition. I don't know whether you... Maybe you see them better than when I see them up here, although I can nearly read these. I've taken just a little selection of the verses from Scripture, but a good conscience is one that's working. That means it will tell you when you're doing wrong. People often say they've got a bad conscience when something is wrong, but actually it's not a bad conscience if it's doing its job. If it's doing its job to set off the fire alarm in your mind about the danger, or get the red lights flashing to say, hey, don't do this, then actually it's a good conscience. It's working. A bad conscience is one that doesn't do you any good anymore. It's become silent. A clear conscience. That's a, a lovely thing. Because when we go about with our conscience muddied, it's, it's, it's upsetting to us. We're, we're not free to be who we are in Christ. A clean conscience, which we'll look at later, where it's purged of all the stuff it's had to deal with. A guilty one. Then perfected. Brought into beautiful harmony with God's will. But the conscience can easily become diseased. You can discover it's weak, wounded, evil, 
guilty, deadened. Sometimes say a psychopath has no conscience. Almost certainly they did have. But bit by bit they've ignored it. They've suppressed it. They've kept it under. They've silenced it. They've turned a deaf ear to it. Until now evil is seen as good. And good as evil. We need to keep the voice that speaks within in good condition. That's why every single day of a Christian's life, we should bring our conscience before God. Rather than watching a horror movie at night or something else, maybe it'd be better getting down on your knees and saying, Lord, speak to me. Let me see in my conscience where I've strayed from you this day, where I've not done what I ought to do. Have you, have you ever meant to send that letter to somebody and that card and you never did? I, I meant to phone somebody a couple of weeks ago. I've, I've got some excuses and explanations of why I haven't done it yet, but you know I wakened up this morning with it in my mind thinking, you need to phone him. Now, it the news of his situation came to me when I was facing somebody else's even more difficult situation. So I excused my old age, but I didn't write it down. I didn't note it in my diary. I didn't put it somewhere so I wouldn't forget. And it's alerted me. You need to do that. A voice that is in good condition. So how do we do that? Well, conscience has to have a healthiness about it. So, Hebrews, I think, helps us to enter the way in which we keep the voice healthy. I think we need to recognize as we do this that the conscience can be oversensitive. And that's an important thing. Romans and Corinthians deal with things that are secondary issues. Things that don't really matter. To them it was like food being sacrificed to idols, turning up in the butcher's shop. So some Christians didn't mind. Okay, they knew it was sacrificed to demons, but to them, meat was meat. Then some poor friends arrive who can't think at all of eating meat that was sacrificed to demons because their whole faith would somehow shrivel up. It's such a thought. If I'm eating meat, am I eating demons? It's amazing the things that we all have a conscience about that are what I would call Mickey Mouse morals. They don't matter very much. Secondary issues, there's no great prohibition in Scripture about them. It's not breaking the law of God. Do you take a walk on Sunday? Or do you go for a drive? Have you even been known to eat in a cafe on a Sunday? My goodness me, I would have been slain alive as a child for doing such a thing. I remember a homeopathic doctor who was at the mercy of those who had suddenly read material about homeopathy that was connected with Chinese ideas and philosophies centuries ago. 
And this poor man who hadn't a clue about Chinese philosophies and was just trying to help people be healthy, whether it worked or not wasn't the issue. The issue was he did not have that and people saying you shouldn't do that, that's sinful. Or should you have a Christmas tree in church? Or a book stall? As one lady said in my first congregation, that book stall will be in this church over my dead body and I have to confess, a silly young minister said, um, <clears throat> well, I'll bury you then, madam. <laughs> to which the whole congregation saw the joke, laughed, and fortunately, somewhere inside herself, she did too. And later, later, we became quite good friends. So the conscience can be oversensitive. You may be one of these people who just don't get peace. Because your conscience is working with things that don't really matter. You need to recalibrate it to understand what is free. But one thing you must not do, whatever is not of faith is sin. So you've got to obey your conscience. So if I was the meat eater long ago, I would have put it back in the fridge and said to the folks, let's have a salad. Because it's not right for my conscience to be imposed on another in such a way that it harms their faith. Nor, nor should we be run as God's people by some conscience of somebody else who thinks they can hold the whole church to ransom on their conscience. Martin Luther would have recanted if it could have been demonstrated that he was wrong from God's word. If he had got a better understanding of it all, his conscience would have changed. It's quite a fascinating thing how this conscience works. Conscience, of course, can then be very harsh and tight. Legalism comes from a form of conscience that is so rigid to its patterns, so sure of its applications but it forgets that there's liberty among the people of God. And we need to learn how to handle these things. But keeping the voice healthy, well, this wonderful passage, as we come to communion in a few minutes, calls us to draw near to God. If your conscience is deeply troubled, that's possibly the last thing you will do. Often the sign that something's going wrong in a person's life is they stop coming to church. Or they stop serving. Or they withdraw from this and that. Conscience bothering them. And sometimes we just simply stop reading his word and stop praying the very things we ought to do in order to get a healthy conscience. See, when David did that, he did so simply on the basis of God's love and mercy. He didn't come with his sin unless God was a merciful and forgiving God. So we didn't either. But around this table we're reminded Christ died for our sins. So we can enter God's presence even though we've fallen along the way. We can enter the holy place of God's presence. The temple is no longer the place because we are the temple. The 
Holy of Holies is not tucked away behind a curtain and the priest only went in once a year. Now we've got open access. Jesus Christ is our access card into the presence of God. That's why he ever lives to make intercession for us, pleading his death for our life and presence. And Hebrews is saying, you have confidence to do that. This is an amazing thing, isn't it? Confidence to go to a holy God as a sinful person, conscious of our faults and failings and all that's happened within us, even this day or last week or all month. We've got confidence. Why? Because we are dependent on something. The blood of Jesus. That's sufficient for our sins. And there's a new way opened up for us. He is the living way. He's the one who is through the curtain. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's where now, sorry, he's now where he will take us one day to be with him forever. A spotless bride. So we can go to God now, our Father, and get our conscience cleansed. Keeping the voice healthy, drawing near to God, entering the holy place. In order that that happens, it needs sincerity and faith that's fully assured. If we go in limping into the presence of God, doubting the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, thinking that God somehow cannot accept me, then we're very mistaken. Because we can go confidently because of the blood of Christ and the great priest over the house of God. On that basis, let us draw near to God. Let our heart be sincere. We want our sin cleansed. We want our conscience set free. No more guilt unnecessarily. Our bodies washed with pure water. Perhaps that refers to baptism. Who knows? But our hearts sprinkled clean from that guilty conscience. What a a joy, what a peace, what a wholeness that we have when that is the case. Conscience, keeping it clean. When we come to this table, sometimes I think we come too conscious of our sin and insufficiently conscious of our Savior. The Puritans used to say, when you see your sin, fly to your Savior. Zwingli in the Reformation period said, a person must go down into himself, but not stay there, or else they're sunk. They must come to Christ, the one whose blood was shed for the cleansing of our sin. Now our conscience is our own. There's a little problem when our consciences are different, but one thing is important, learning to discuss what we know that makes our conscience act in this way or that. One of the fascinating things is the the four little things that are said just at the end from verse 23. There's something about 
the conscience that we need help from one another to make sure the conscience is well instructed. Even thieves and robbers have a conscience. They might not steal from their granny, but be happy to steal from the rich. Now, as a social worker, I had a case to deal with in Black Hill in Glasgow near Berlin. At that point, the police were going in four by four. Just about everybody either was in Berlin, going into Berlin, or just had been released from Berlin. So it was Berlin's extension. And I went in with my imp van on my own. How did that happen? One, because I was ignorant of how dangerous it was. But two, because something amazing happened. There was a couple accused of pushing their little toddler into a big coal fire. He was badly, badly burned. It wasn't true. They just never had got a fire guard. Thieves that they were, actually they looked after their children. They had a big cold fire in one of Glasgow's damp houses, streaming with water. They did this for their children. They never pushed that boy in. The granny and grandpa were in the house. When I went, they were looking after the children. They knew it hadn't happened. They were broken-hearted. They didn't pretend that their son and daughter-in-law were goody-goodies. They knew the things they got up to. They said they love their children. So I was their advocate. So when I went into Black Hill, I was surrounded by the conscience that worked on my behalf, because I was working on their behalf. So when I drove in in my imp van, four guys would appear from nowhere and stand guard round my van. No wheels were stolen, no windows smashed in, no car removed. Their conscience was functioning. It just needed the light of the gospel to transform what that conscience could work with. And that's what we need also. So, we need to help each other to hold on to our hope of glory even when we falter and fail. And when some of you falter and fail badly, how will you help each other? To spur each other on to good works so that we don't do the evil ones. To meet together to strengthen one another in the presence of God and to encourage one another. Courage, notice, put courage into us that we can live holy lives as we watch the day approaching when Christ will return and all will be well. And in a moment, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more falling or failing, no more death anymore. We'll be in the new heaven and the new earth, living righteous lives in harmony with God's will. And if we have a conscience then, it'll sparkle because it's as clean, as clean as you ever could find. And every day it'll be saying, good stuff, boys and girls, you're doing well. Keep in the path of God. 
Not all songs talk about conscience much, although one or two of the new ones do. And there is a line in the one that we now sing that includes our conscience. All my days. Let's just stand together. We sing All My Days, Beautiful Saviour. <laughs>